degree. Well, if you wanted to be a teacher of the law, that is how uh, you would do that. You would actually come and ask, seek to be someone's student. What's different about Jesus' ministry, if you've read the Gospels, you know that he went and chose his disciples. He called them away from what they were doing and called them to his side to teach them. He sought them out. He called them. And while in the moment that may not seem significant, in truth it really was. In John 15, Jesus explains to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. He goes on to warn them that the world was about to come for them, that they would suffer persecution and rejection for his name, but then he promises them that he would send them a helper, the Spirit, to equip them for the fight. Jesus did not choose his disciples because they were smarter, bolder, well, maybe Peter, or well-connected. He took fishermen, and he made them fishers of men. He took a tax collector from his booth and gave him an inheritance in the kingdom of God. He took an assassin and made him a proclaimer of life. He took a skeptic and made him a believer. In all this, God showed that the power of salvation does not lie in the works or the accomplishments of men but in the redeeming power of God's grace. The choice of God, which we see in Christ's own choosing of his disciples, is transforming. God in his sovereignty and grace takes what is low and despised in the world and he turns it into something beautiful. That is what grace is. God's riches at Christ's expense given to those who do not deserve it That is why we are here this morning. It is our story, the story of every believer for every follower of Christ. Our passage today has to do with instructing God's people in how we are to live as a holy people, separating ourselves from the corruption of the world around us. Here in Deuteronomy 7, Moses teaches the people what they must do as they go in to receive the land of Canaan. War is coming, and Moses is equipping the nation to make sure they're prepared to live in obedience to God as they receive what he had set aside for them. As such, this is a very helpful passage to consider how God calls us out of our former allegiance to sin and the flesh to live as a people who have been separated by God, for God, to live by faith in the grace that he has so richly poured out on us through his son. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. Once again, we're in Deuteronomy chapter 7, starting in verse 1 and reading through verse 16. This is the word of the Lord. Moses writes, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, And clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, 
and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. And because you listen to these rules and keep them and do them, the Lord your God will keep you will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock in the land that he swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your livestock. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness and none of the evil diseases of Egypt, which you knew, will he inflict on you. But he will lay them on all who hate you. And you shall consume all the peoples that the Lord your God will give over to you. Your eyes shall not pity them, neither shall you serve their gods, for that will be a snare to you. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, there are many themes running through this passage. We have the theme of God's justice being poured out on the wicked. We have instructions being given to Israel about how to deal with the people who were living in the land of Canaan and also how to deal with their gods that they served there. We have warnings being given to God's people about what would happen if they were not faithful to listen to God's commands. But even so, we also have themes of God's mercy and grace, of his faithfulness and unending love. This is a passage which is intended to instruct God's people and how to live on mission as a holy people who have been called by God and set apart to live in holiness and obedience to Christ. And that brings us to the main idea of this text, which is this. God's people have been called out to live as a holy people. God has called his people out to live as a holy people. In calling them to himself, we can see from this passage how God separated Israel from the world to be his holy people. Moses' instructions here have to do with equipping the nation of Israel for maintaining their separation from the world as they enter the promised land. As we look at what Moses says here, we see three important points for how God's people are meant to live as a holy people. We see that God's people are meant to separate, to live separate from the world. They are to live separate for God, 
and they are to be separate for glory. So uh, as we look at this this morning, we're going to see how that plays into uh, our calling in Christ. Now the word holiness, if you had to describe that, uh, really has to do with it, the word itself, kadosh, uh, you can remember that because you throw a heavy rock into water, it makes a kadush sound, right? Kadosh means heavy, weighty, glorious. The word holiness used throughout the Bible, com- com- it, it communicates the heaviness of the glory of God, but it also refers specifically to God's purity and his perfection. It is tightly woven within God's glory. As the angels declare the glory of God in the book of Revelation, we hear how they call out before the throne, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The Bible weaves these themes together. Holiness conveys the idea that something is set apart, that it is sacred, that is glorious. And so as we hear Moses speak to the nation in verse 6, and telling them, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. We must recognize that his instructions here were intended to teach them in how to live in that holiness. As we've talked about what the book of Deuteronomy is meant to do, we, we, see, very, we see very clearly that it is a book that is meant to instruct us in the way of holiness. Our passage here is no exception to that. So as we look at Moses' instructions here, we hear God's God's instructions for us. We see first off that as having called us to be a holy people unto himself, we see that God calls his people to be separate from the world. Now the Bible was not written in a vacuum. It would be very easy to read an Old Testament text like this and try to spiritualize it into different parts of our lives. We want to let the Bible interpret itself and we want to take into consideration the history in which what's going on here as we read it. As we read this passage, we must recognize that, and and whenever we read the Bible, that these words were intended first for those who first received it, and that they were also kept for us to instruct us. So as we keep that in mind, uh, it helps us to keep us from twisting scripture to mean things it doesn't, and it protects us from writing scripture off as unimportant for us. This is a very important passage for us. As we come to Deuteronomy 7, we must keep in mind that Moses was first speaking these words to the Israelites who were preparing to go in and receive the promised land. Moses is speaking to Joshua and this generation of Israelites who are going to take Canaan by conquest. He is instructing them about how they are to treat the nations who are currently occupying the land. And it's pretty simple instruction. He tells them to destroy these people, to show no mercy, but to wipe them off from the face of the earth. He warns them very carefully, very firmly, that if they fail to devote these enemy nations to complete destruction, if they do show mercy to them, if they offer them terms of peace instead and begin to allow their sons to marry their women and marry their daughters off to their sons, then that will lead to their own destruction. To be perfectly honest, as I'm reading verse, verses 1 through 5, I have to admit it has a bit of a brutal feel to it. Moses tells the people that when they enter the land, they must clear it of the enemy nations. Defeating them is not enough. They're not to put them into service. It will not do merely to destroy their armies in battle. Rather, Moses says, you must devote them to complete destruction. Now, this is not how Israel was always commanded to go into war, but it is specifically here. Moses tells them, do not offer them terms of peace. 
Do not intermarry with them. Do not allow any of them to live. No, Israel is commanded here to clear the land with the edge of the sword. God is instructing their armies to make a clean sweep of them, to devote these seven nations to total annihilation. Now, as brutal as that may feel to us, as, as much as a passage like this can offend our modern sensibilities, Moses, God gave this command to Israel through Moses for two very good reasons. First, we must understand that the destruction of, uh, the destruction of these nations was just and right. They are not innocent. In taking the land from these nations and giving it to Israel, God was committing no wrong. Daniel chapter 2 verse 21 says, He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. The meaning of what Daniel says there is quite clearly that it is God's prerogative to give life and to take it away, to give land and to take it away, to give authority and to take it away. It is God's right to do these things because all life, all authority, all good things are from him. And in his goodness, God is also the judge of all the earth. He always does what is right. There is no act of wrong which will not go unanswered. The Israelites may be the ones bearing the sword here, but as we read this passage, we are meant to understand that really it is God wielding them to bring justice on seven very wicked nations. This command to destroy the other nations was a just command because ultimately it was, it was God bringing judgment on these nations that had violated his commands. Although God had made them, they had not glorified him or even known him. Instead, they worshiped idols. They committed heinous acts of immort immortality. Sorry, of immorality. <laughs> they lived by violence. Uh, there are many reports of nation, these nations going even so far as to sacrifice their own children to false gods in terrible ways. Even though the glory of God was plain for them to see in all creation, their hearts were hard and they continued to profane his name. Now, if you go back to the book of Genesis and you read God's promise to Abraham, you will find that God speaks to Abraham about how his descendants would go and would be slaves in a foreign land for 400 years and then would be brought back to receive the land. And the reason God gives to Abraham in that is because he says the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. So even though the Amorites and these, these Canaanites did not serve the Lord, they were still made by God and they were still accountable to God. And God was keeping track. The sword of Israel was no different than the flood that God sent on the earth in the days of Noah. It was a sword of judgment and justice. For over 400 years, God put up with the sin of these seven nations. He had been merciful to them. He had sent them rain. He had given them crops. He had given them children. He had watered their fields, given them wealth, multiplied them, and still they continued to sin against him, not only by doing what he commanded not to do, but also by giving credit for the good things he had given them to false gods. When these nations heard about how God had judged Egypt and wreaked havoc on Pharaoh and his false gods there, 
They feared and they trembled. When we read the book of Joshua, we, Rahab says, we, we, our hearts are melting. But they did not repent. They continued on in the hardness of their hearts until finally the time of their iniquity was complete. Judgment was here. So as we read this command, as hard as it is to hear, we must recognize that this is no wrongdoing on God's part. He is bringing justice after he has brought, had, had shown them mercy. If God's justice against these nations feels wrong to us, I would suggest that perhaps it is because we really don't understand how bad sin really is. We, we read Romans 3.23 that the wages of sin is death, but then we fail to really take that judgment to heart. We can presume upon God's mercy. We can reason with ourselves that God must show us grace. After all, that's who he is. Doesn't he have to forgive us? Isn't he a God of love? I hear people say. But the reality is that while God is patient toward the undeserving, his justice is true and real. The prophet Ezekiel tells us that God does not delight in the death of the wicked. His desire is that all should repent and seek forgiveness. He promises to give it to those who come to him by faith. But he also promises to uphold perfect justice. And that is what this command is intended to show us. God shows his patience towards the world in bearing with it, but his patience will not last forever. A day of judgment is coming, just as it did for Canaan. A final day when God says he will hold the world accountable. And if that doesn't light a fire under you to share the gospel, I don't know what will. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16, described that day this way. John says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diamonds, many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. If it's not clear to you, this is Jesus. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. The judgment that came on Canaan was just. It was the sword of the Lord, and that same sword will one day come on the world, wielded by Christ himself. And that brings us to the second reason Moses commanded Israel to, complete, to make a complete end of these other nations. Not only was this an act of God's justice and judgment, but it was also an act of God's defense of Israel's own holiness. Israel's holiness is on the line here. God knew that if the Israelites failed to carry out this command, it would lead to their own rebellion against him and therefore their own destruction. Notice that Moses prohibits the people from making any sort of covenant with, with these nations or allowing their sons or their, uh, to take wives from the Canaanites or giving their daughters to be married to Canaanites because he knows, verse 4, that if they do, their children would turn away from following the Lord to serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against the nation and the Lord would visit the same destruction on them that he had on the Canaanites. 
because God is just. If you read the ending of the book of Joshua and the beginning of the book of, of, of Judges, you will see that Israel, when they failed to keep, this, to keep this command, it led to their own destruction. The whole book of Judges is to show about how Israel fell short and to give an account for why a king was needed. God is not partial with his judgment. The destruction that was coming on the Canaanites for their own sin was a warning to the nation of Israel not to follow suit. As long as the Canaanites were allowed to live in the land, God knew there would always be a temptation for Israel to fall into the same sin and the same destruction. And so his command here is a warning to the people not to make peace with this, not to leave the door open to corruption. Sin is a deadly thing. Peter says that the devil prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking whoever he may devour. If you knew there was a lion prowling around Sheboygan, as strange as that might be, you would not leave your, your, your door open. Rosie got out of the house yesterday, and I don't know how she did it. You don't want to open the door to a threat. You wouldn't do that. Jesus calls Satan a liar and a murderer from the beginning who parades himself as an angel of light, but his purpose is to corrupt and destroy everything he can because he hates God. He and his forces are at work every moment to disrupt your satisfaction in Christ, to lure you into his house to kill and destroy you. Friends, like it or not, we are in a war for our souls and we must be on our guard. We must see sin for the deadly thing that it is so that we will not permit even a small bit to go on unchecked in our lives. The world, I don't, I don't mean the earth, I, I mean the world and its worldliness is not your friend. It is under the power of the one who his purpose is to seek to destroy you. That is why James, speaking very candidly to Christians who had fallen into that trap, says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity, is war with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is for no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Thank God for his grace that he pours out on us to arm and equip us for that fight. Echoing Moses who told the people of Israel to show no mercy in their fight, James says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Friends, the judgment of God is real. And so is his mercy and grace. The victory that Christ won for us must have its place in our lives. It must expel sin. It must arm us to fight it. Besides calling for the Israelites to devote the Canaanites to destruction, 
Moses also tells them to devote the objects of their worship to destruction as well. In verse 5, he tells them to wage war on the altars and the idols and the pillars and the ashram because these had no place in Israel's worship of the one true God. God gave this command to Israel to protect them from judgment. We must separate ourselves from the world and its desires by taking every thought, every deed, every desire captive for the sake of holiness. We must live in this world remembering always that we belong to a kingdom that is not of this world. As Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is a fight we must give our all to, because the moment we take our foot away from this enemy's throat is the moment we begin to lose. So friends, live as a people who have been separated by God for God. And that brings us to our second point, where to live separate for God. God's wrath and God's justice is, is not really something that I think anybody really enjoys to think about. Because it's scary, and rightly so. But it's important for us to think about. I'm convinced that why, the reason why there is so little righteous grief and mourning in the church today is because we think too little of God's righteousness and we think too little of sin's ugliness. When sin is emptied of its scandal, our fear of it quickly diminishes. When that happens, our grasp on the depth of God's love and faithfulness to us tends to slip, and we begin to slip into all sorts of different error. The main reason we have been called to separate ourselves from sin and from worldliness is because God has called his people to be separate from such things, and he has called us to himself. And this is where we get to see the true beauty of God's love and his amazing grace. Looking at the Canaanites and looking at Israel, what was the difference between the two? What set Israel apart to receive the blessings of the land and the Canaanites for destruction? What reason can you give? Was it because Israel was bigger was this a case of might makes right? No. Actually, Moses says that all these nations are bigger than Israel. Well, was Israel better? No way. We've read enough of the Bible to know that the Israelites were indeed sinners too. So what was it? What was the difference? Look at verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who were on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack 
with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. So the difference between Israel and the Canaanites has nothing to do with who they were. It had everything to do with who God is. God had chosen to show Israel mercy and grace. He had set them apart and chosen them to be his people, even though they had nothing to offer him except perhaps their littleness, their unworthiness, and their weakness. You remember when God called Abraham, Abraham and Sarah were barren. They couldn't have kids. And yet God chose him and said that through Abraham's seed, he would bless all the nations of the earth. The reason Israel became a holy people was because God in his love had set his heart upon them. According to his own purpose and plan, God chose them and called them to be his. He had set them apart. He had redeemed them. He had multiplied them and made his covenant with them. He had chosen to to make them a spotlight in a dark world where people could come and see his glory as the one true God who is. God gave them his law. He gave them his commands. He made his presence dwell with them. He gave them intercessors like Moses and Aaron to be with them and to teach them. The calling of Israel was unconditional, meaning that they did not do anything to earn God's love. They did not meet a set of conditions that made them God's people. God chose them. He set it freely upon them. He had called their father Abraham out of a house of idolatry to bear his name, to be the source of blessing for the whole world. He had worked to overcome Abraham and Sarah's barrenness, giving them a son just as he promised in his old age. He had preserved his line through every conceivable threat. Every time something happened that threatened that seed, God worked in a way only God could. God brought his descendants to Egypt and then brought them out to inherit this good land with the blessing of his covenant with them to give them a new Eden where the whole world would get to see his glory as the one true God. All of that was God's work. Moses' description here really puts God's grace in perspective, doesn't it? Like Israel, the truth is that we all deserve God's justice. We are all the Canaanites. Moses says that God is not slack with the one who hates him. Left to ourselves, we have hearts that are bent against God. God says he repays wickedness with perfect justice, but he's also merciful and gracious. In time, God showed his love in an even more amazing way than just in the way he called Israel to himself. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be a sacrifice, to be the sacrifice for the sin of his people, to rescue them from sin and to make from them, to to make uh, from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every language, one people for his name's sake, to be joined to him in his kingdom. That is the measure of God's grace to you. In 1 Peter 2, Peter explains, They stumbled because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had received mercy, you had received mercy, but now you have re- you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Friends, this is the unconditional love that God shows to us. He has called you in this love to an inheritance of life that you don't deserve, but which you receive at the work of Christ by faith in his Son. If you're trusting in Christ this day, brothers and sisters, understand that the reason you stand before God, righteous, is because of his gracious love. You did not earn that love. He poured it out on you because he is faithful and true to his promises. The reason your eyes were open to your sin, the reason your heart was convinced and you realized you need a Savior, the reason you had a heart of faith to trust in Christ, the reason you love Him this morning is because He first loved you and called you to Himself. That is the measure of God's grace to you. He called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. He worked to give you a heart of faith. He provided you with the atoning sacrifice of His own Son who died and rose again so that you might have life in His name. That should evoke worship. I have always thought that the people who, who believe what the Bible says about sovereign grace should be the most humble people in the world because we know that we don't deserve the love of God and he gave it to us anyway at the greatest expense you could ask for. As Christians, we do not think for a moment, not a moment, that somehow we are better than anyone else. Far from it. We know our sin. What we confess and what the hope of our faith is, is that we have a Savior who is greater than our sin, who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light for his own glory, and who has called us to go out into a dark world sharing this good news of what he has done, calling our neighbors and our friends and our family and, 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 and calling everyone we can to repentance and belief, trusting that God works for that witness and the Spirit delights in that. We do not preach a gospel that requires people to come to, them, to come to Christ after they have cleaned themselves up. We preach a gospel that calls people to come to a gracious God who calls the sinner to himself and makes them righteous. And that brings us to our third point. We are separate for a greater glory. In verses 11 through 16, Moses lists blessing after blessing of everything God had set aside for his people to enjoy. He talks about how God will give them the land, blessing them and multiplying them. He says, he will bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil and the increase of your herds and the young of your flocks. You shall be blessed above all people. There shall not be a male or female barren among you or or your livestock. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness and, and, one, and all the evil diseases in Egypt, which you knew, he, will he, inflict, he will not inflict on you, but he will lay on all who hate you. And you shall consume all the peoples that the Lord your God will give over to you. Your eyes shall not pity them, neither shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. As we, as we look at the things that Moses describes here, notice that, the, that 
Everything that's being promised to them was a blessing of God's own covenant, covenantal faithfulness, part of his gracious gift to him. Uh, the language here is heavy with significance because as you look at these blessings, you re- it takes us back to the Garden of Eden. And as you, as you look through this list of blessings, it's a reversal of the curses. The ground is not cursed. Childbearing happens. Your, your flocks multiply. You're a steward over these things. It, it's a new Eden. It teaches us something about the goodness of God's gift and the redemptive purposes he had in all of this. At this point in the story of redemption, we can see very clearly how God is working in spite of human rebellion to save a remnant for himself. We can see God's good gifts being poured out in the midst of and on, that, on the undeserving. Sickness and death are being reversed. God is putting his blessing on Israel to multiply them and the work of their hands to meet all their needs and to make them a blessing in the midst of the earth for all nations. Even while we get to see God's purpose of redemption here, we're also reminded that even though God promises great and good blessings, though he warns us against sin, the human heart is weak and wicked. You see, Israel did not do what God commanded them to do. In time, we see that they failed to destroy the Canaanites from out of the land, and they were, in fact, led into idolatry and rebellion against the Lord. They fell short of the command. They transgressed the law. So the point is made to us that unless God works in us to give us a new heart and to put his own spirit within us, we will always go our own way. It is in our nature. That is what makes the work of Christ so significant. Where human effort fails, Christ prevails. And it's by his grace that we receive righteousness and eternal life. So as we look at this passage, we see two things really being communicated to us. Well, three things. We see that God calls us to be a holy people unto himself. We see that we are unable to do that in and of ourselves. And we see the depths of his mercy and his grace poured out on us. And all that together should make us be resolved to live in that grace at war with those things that seek to destroy us. As we look at the book of Deuteronomy, we see that the law of the Lord is good, but it is not, that it is not burdensome. The law instructs us to love the Lord with all that we are. It commands us to love others the way we love ourselves. And yet, even in something that simple, we know how often we come short of that. We do not deserve the blessings of God. He gives them to us freely and generously as an act of his own grace and mercy. Every blessing in our life is a gift of that grace, which was purchased by the costly blood of Christ that has been freely poured out on you and me. When it comes to resisting the allure of sin, when it comes to waging war against worldliness and our own fleshly desires, we must remember that Christ is the source of every blessing in our life, that he is the only one who can satisfy us. That is the key to enjoying those good things in a right way. That is how we resist the allure and the temptation of worldliness that is out to destroy us. We set our hope in our Savior who has given us himself and who has given us every other blessing as a gift of his steadfast love. God calls his people in holiness to be holy. This morning, we have seen that we are called to live as a holy people by separating ourselves from the world. We have seen that we are called by God to be a people for his own possession. And we have seen that God has given us grace upon grace in every way 
in Christ. As we go out this week, may God give us grace to live as a holy people who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we've read your commands that you gave to Israel as they went into, a, a, into the midst of nations that were going to seek to destroy them, but which you had determined to bring justice upon. And so, Lord, in the, in the days of Joshua, the armies of Israel went forth, though they were smaller than the nations they faced, and with you leading them, we see that they won victory. And yet, Father, we also see their own weakness. And as we see their weakness, Father, we think about our own weakness. Lord, I pray that this week you will bring to mind places in our life that we need to wage war on. Lord, let us not make terms with our sin. Keep us from that. Give us such a vivid picture of your holiness and the glory of Christ and the beauty of Christ that we will be resolved to put those fleshly things that we struggle with to death. And Lord, as we look out on our, on our world, we see people everywhere who are still caught up in their sin. And in many ways, Father, it, it seems that people are, they have tried to move past the gospel. But yet, Lord, we know that the gospel is the only way for people to be saved. And while they satisfy themselves Seek, seek satisfaction with things that are poisonous to them. Lord, you have given us the remedy and called us to carry it to those who are lost in their sin. And Lord, I pray that we would be faithful in that this, this, this week. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be filled with such a love for you that we cannot be silent. And I pray, Father, that we would live as a holy nation, as a redeemed people, and that through that work, Christ would be exalted and your name would be glorified. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you will stand.